Hello and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Professor Patrice Rankin from the Department of Classics and the College. Professor Rankin researches the Greco-Roman classics and their afterlife, particularly as they pertain to literature, theater, and the history and performance of race. He's here to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Patrice Rankin. It is great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. So just to start off, can you give me just a sense of your career path, beginning in your undergraduate years, all the way to your current role with the university? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I I would probably have to start with my high school years because there was a radical disruption to what I was doing and what I thought I would be doing. So one of my big influences has been my dad. And my dad had a genuine interest in photography and When he immigrated from Jamaica to the United States, he had to give that up. He had a photo studio in Jamaica, was up and and coming, starting his practice, and then came to the United States and, of course, had to find work, had to make ends meet, and took a a blue-collar job. I didn't know for a long time how into photography my dad was. When I started high school, I went to a high school that had photography as one of the fields that I could study. And then a whole world opened up. My dad began to let me see his equipment, his darkroom equipment, his enlargers, all this stuff he had, and built a darkroom. He took all this stuff out of storage and built a darkroom for me. And after work, when he came home from work every day, we would look over photographs and look at things I've taken, look at film I've processed. And we just had a a great time bonding around photography. Unfortunately, what I came to realize was that photography was my father's calling, not mine. And so despite spending all this time in high school building up for college education in photography and being admitted to places like the School of Visual Arts and Pratt Institute in New York, where I grew up, at the last minute, I had a kind of awakening, a realization that, you know, you're about to enter this path. You're going to commit four years and all this financing to a path that really isn't of deep interest to you. So at the last minute, I um, applied to the local public college, which was part of the City University of New York, Brooklyn College. And I did that because they had rolling admission. And by now it was June of the year I was to matriculate into college. So deciding this at the last minute, Brooklyn College provided me with a landing place, a place where I could begin to study and um, begin to pursue areas that I was interested in, apart from my father, apart from my my background. And one of the requirements at Brooklyn College was uh, a language requirement. They had an extensive core requirement at the time. One of those requirements was language. And um, for reasons that I can get into, I chose to study ancient Greek. And from there, really fell in love with the language, took Latin the following year, And at that point now, advisors and the deans are asking, well, what are you going to do with this? And uh, fortunately, at that time, a program through the Mellon Foundation was beginning. It was called the Mellon, at that time, Mellon Minority Undergraduate Fellowship. Now it's called Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship. And this fellowship was interested in cultivating young students who were interested in pursuing professions in teaching. And the mentors who were assigned to me realized that I was getting deep into this field and asked me if I had any interest or thought 
about teaching in college. And of course, I hadn't even contemplated that, but knew that I really loved this field and loved the material I was studying and learning about in college. So I applied to this program, the MMUF program. I won the fellowship. It funded trips to places like Trier, West Germany at the time, where I studied German. It funded um, or supported my trip to the Intercollegiate Center for Classical Studies in Rome, which I did during my junior year of college. And from there, I applied to graduate school, was accepted to several graduate schools and chose Yale University at the time, studied at Yale Classical Languages and Literatures, graduated six years later, and um, took my first job at Purdue University. At Purdue, there wasn't a classics department. We were a program within what came to be known as a school of languages and cultures. And that allowed me some flexibility. It allowed me to play around a little bit. Although my dissertation in graduate school was on Seneca and drama, being in a, a broad school of languages and cultures, it wasn't quite, you know, colleagues weren't quite looking over my shoulder I could make up courses. I had to teach required undergraduate courses, but I also had an opportunity to develop areas that were not typically known in the classics. So I was interested specifically in the African-American engagement with the classics, with classical literature, with Latin and Greek and mythology, and landed on Ralph Ellison as someone I was really interested in. I wrote my first book on Ralph Ellison. And again, because I wasn't in the classics department, was able to really just explore and build a pathway and a, a sub-discipline, which then dovetailed. And I came to realize that people were doing this in places like the United Kingdom. I mean, they were calling it classical reception studies. So my work actually landed within this space that I didn't even know existed. So I, I ran with that circle for a while, so to speak, and spent a lot of time in the UK with scholars like Edith Hall and Fiona McIntosh, Justine McConnell and others who were working in classical reception studies. You know, for a while did some administration, which we can also talk about. And more recently now, I'm at the University of Chicago. I'm happy to be, for the first time in my career, actually, in a classics department where uh, the subfield of classical reception studies is one the department is very interested in expanding. And um, we have graduate students who have this interest. We have applicants who have this interest. Undergraduates are taken with the question of the afterlife of the classics in contemporary, in modern and contemporary spaces. So my work provides one entry into that conversation. So Patrice, thank you for that overview. But I'm curious, two questions here. How would you explain your research interests to a high schooler, someone who's never read or heard anything about the classics, doesn't know anything about Greek language? And why did you fall in love with this field? Yeah, I mean, so... The classics are everywhere. And just last night, I'm teaching a course called Greece, Rome, Texts, Traditions, and Transformations. It's a first-year course for undergraduates. They take epic in their first semester and now tragedy in the second semester. And reading the newspaper, I saw that there was going to be a film by French filmmaker Alice Diop called Saint-Omer. And as I was reading the review of it, one of the things that the reviewer hinted at was that this was a modern adaptation of Euripides' play Medea, involving a woman who ends up killing her children. 
a longstanding myth in Greek mythology. So this film, set in modern-day France in Paris, explores the story of an immigrant woman based on a true story, but it's a film, a drama, who has done this. She um, killed her child, and the filmmaker took a deep interest in this and connected it to classical myth and classical stories. So here is an example of you know something that rarely happens, of course, hopefully, but it does happen. And this film explores the psychology around an event like this. And the students can see that classical myth is everywhere. It gives meaning and shape to our lives. It always has. And artists, filmmakers, writers are working within the stories, the images, the traditions of the classics, both consciously and unconsciously. So this filmmaker is clearly conscious of the Medea myth. There are several kind of allusions to both the myth, but also to previous film, like Pasolini's film, Medea, the Italian filmmaker's film. Uh, so here is an example of kind of the afterlife. You know, why would we keep returning to these stories? Why would we return to a story like the myth of Medea? And you asked why I was interested, what sparked my interest. So I, back to high school. I loved photography. It wasn't that I didn't love photography. But what I loved even more were those classes like the one where we were reading Shakespeare's Macbeth or a class where I was exposed to Charles Dickens's Tale of Two Cities or Great Expectations. These were books that just opened my imagination. They did something for me that the world of photography didn't. And again, the world of photography can do that for other people. It does to me, for me now in other ways. But literature was just a world that sparked my curiosity, sparked my imagination, opened up worlds for me. And so the idea that I would study the classics, I can talk about why ancient Greek, but the reason, the idea that I would study the classics and link it to contemporary literature uh, makes a lot of sense from what was sparking my my interests in high school. And what were you like as a student in <laughs> high school? Yeah, I was a terrible student. <laughs> there were all kinds of issues of identity for me. Who am I? You know, why am I here? Why am I so different from others around me? So I was a very distracted student. Um, but where I wasn't distracted, as I mentioned, were in those literature classes and as it pertains to ancient Greek, another thing about my background is that we grew up going to church all the time. My parents are very religious, and we ended up in a Baptist church in Brooklyn, New York, when we uh, migrated from, the, from Jamaica. This was a very sort of learned congregation. The pastor had his advanced degrees, and one thing he did often in his sermons is he would refer to the Greek New Testament. So he would, he would cite a passage, and he would begin his explication in his sermon and he would make references to the Greek New Testament. And I say he, he was replaced by a female pastor, and she did the same thing. So in the back of my mind, alongside the literature I was reading, was this strange and curious language that was also of another world, of another time. And when I saw that Brooklyn College had ancient Greek as an option, obviously I turned right to the idea of the Greek New Testament. Oh, okay, well, this will allow me to read the Greek New Testament will allow me to see things that the pastors, for example, were, were seeing. And I didn't know what I was going to do with that, but I did know that I recognized it from Sunday services and um, I recognized it as a value and as something I was really curious about. 
Is there anything when you look back at that time in your life, is there anything that you're like, oh, it kind of makes sense that I became a teacher, that teaching became part of what I wanted to do? Yeah, I have a, a story about, so when I started at Brooklyn College and when I got the MMUF undergraduate fellowship, one of the things I was able to do was stop working off campus. I was working actually in a, a film developing shop, a photo developing shop across the street from Brooklyn College in an area that's very sort of congested. It's called The Junction. So there were a lot of shops there. And at the time, photo processing shop was one of them. I was working there. This fellowship allowed me to work on campus. If I had, if I were, were going to work at all, I could now work on campus. And um, one of the options was to be a peer tutor. So we had a series of core courses. The classics core, core one was called Classical Origins of Western Civilization, an unfortunate title looking back on it now. But I became a peer tutor for that course. And I remember tutoring a student who was lost in the Iliad. This person just didn't know head from tails of the Iliad and why this work mattered at all and, and what they were to do with this work. And during a session, I was teaching or, or explaining the text, and I just saw this person's eyes light up. It was just a moment of recognition where this person got it, was excited about it, and um, was with me, um, saw what I saw for even a brief moment. I'll never forget that. That was probably the first moment I realized what teaching can do. And if I look back, I can see moments where teachers did that for me. But doing that for the student, my peer, gave me a sense that the world of ideas is vast and one could connect to it and connect to other people through it. And that it was a bridge between, as, as James Baldwin puts it, I love this phrase from James Baldwin. He says that there are these bridges between the world and me. And that was a bridge between the world and me. The world of literature and the world of ideas was a bridge. It was allowed the eye to connect with someone else. And when those moments happen in class today, all these years later, it's a great class. And it's a fun, just exciting, life-changing um, reality. Patrice, did you encounter any barriers or resistance, obstacles, anything like that in your journey to becoming an academic? Yeah, I mean, I think the the obstacle, you know, you can't see me, but I'm African-American. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And even today, I'm not in the majority of people that you see applying to classics programs, majoring in classics or teaching classics. Um, so I think the first big obstacle was my own mind, my own kind of sense of myself in it, which is, in fact, what led me to Ralph Ellison. In graduate school, I felt extremely isolated I was an N of one. Some people believe, I've never really researched this, but I might well be the first African-American to graduate with a PhD in classics from Yale University. And I felt that. I was very isolated. And so reading Invisible Man at a time when I was sort of coming off of writing my dissertation, landing my first job, it really gave me a sense that I wasn't alone, that there were other people like me be they African-American, be they Asian-American. They weren't in the majority, but they also had connections to this tradition. They also had connections to these texts, these ideas, whether a kind of grafted branch onto a tree or a seed that fell near the tree, whatever the case may be, they had, they were part of this soil. They were part of this sense of the past, this sense of community. So that would be the obstacle, just the kind of isolation. 
and my attempts to deal with that isolation, which I did in the same way I guess I approached every other problem. I looked for answers in the past. I looked for connections elsewhere that I couldn't necessarily see that weren't necessarily at hand or around me in the present. What about people? Who did you rely on for support as you made your way through this challenging career path? The process from getting from undergraduate to PhD is itself a challenge. And then beyond that, finding work, finding employment is a challenge. So who did you turn to for support? Yeah, that's a thank you for that question. The first are my parents, because unlike many parents, they never really, of course, they would ask, what are you going to do with that? But it was never a hindrance or a prohibition. It was always, if they asked it, it was out of curiosity, and then would come support. They never blocked my entry. They never said, you can't do this or you shouldn't do this. In fact, I remember days where in undergraduate, I might have been struggling with my Greek. I remember crying one day and my mom being right there saying, you can do it. There's no reason why you can't do it. You've achieved everything else you set out to achieve. You know, so just the sort of the love and support of family, not having expectations of what they wanted of me, but trying to nurture in me what I might be. That was really critical. And along with them, there were teachers that I found along the way, people both in, you know, earlier school and then also in college, like the dean, Kathy Gover, who says to me, what, again, same question, what's your plan? What are you going to do with this? And then not saying you can't or you shouldn't, but saying, well, here's a pathway through the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship where it might be even more possible and you might be able to thrive and flourish. So why not, why not apply to this and see where it goes? So those are the kinds of dispositions I would say are helpful. Not blocking someone or saying why you can't or shouldn't, but seeking out what they're really after and how to encourage and support and nurture what they might do. So why did you want to become a professor or an academic as opposed to really any other kind of job that you could do with this kind of knowledge? Yeah. I mean, again, so in some ways, that experience in college of of knowing that I could spark interest in someone else, that we could have a shared sense of meaning through these texts made teaching a low-lying fruit. It was clear I was going to teach. And I've pursued other pathways within academia. I've been an administrator I was a dean at two different places. I helped run the School of Languages and Cultures when I was at Purdue University. And there are benefits to those kinds of pursuits as well and things I enjoyed about those pursuits and still enjoy about similar pursuits. But the choice to be in academia was one that was going to be somewhat natural. It, it also, when I think about it today, it gives me a space to to be different and to think differently, where one can look at contemporary affairs and be in it, but not of it, be separate from it somewhat, and therefore able to analyze it, to see it a little bit more clearly. And I have to ask you too, what are the enjoyable, the fun parts about this job? And then following up, you know, what don't you like about this job? Yeah. So the fun parts are back to the kind of excursion we had last night, you know, where 40 students 
traveled on a bus from Hyde Park to the Loop Chicago to the Gene Siskel Film Center and watch this film together. That's just a kind of cherry on top of what happens in the classroom. It's an added kind of joy to be able to extend to them what professors extended to me. I remember whenever things like that happen, I remember my college Greek professor, Howard Molman, who had us over to his home often to read Greek or to watch a movie, or we went out to plays in New York. He introduced us to brie cheese and cultural experiences that we didn't experience prior. So to extend that to students is a real joy. And that's, you know, in a way, when you hear that, you might also hear the counter to that, where I wouldn't even say the parts I don't enjoy, but the parts that, again, lead us back to that sort of isolation. Our profession can be a very isolated profession. We, many of us work alone. You know, the text can't speak to me when I'm surrounded by 25 other people. Uh, So it's solitary work. For that reason, I have at times enjoyed the kind of conviviality and the teamwork that can come through being an administrator, working in an office, you know, arriving at 8 a.m., having colleagues in the office to talk to, having a shared sense of purpose in the tasks we're accomplishing, a shared sense of accomplishment. That doesn't happen as often for the solitary scholar. Now, Many of us work in groups now, and I mentioned the group of colleagues in the UK who work on classical reception studies. We've had great times collaborating and co-authoring and doing things together, but oftentimes the work I do is solitary, and that can be, that can bring back the same sort of isolation that I was running from. And then I wonder what advice you would have for, specifically for people like yourself, so for Black students who are considering academia, who might be considering the classics, or maybe even more broadly, the humanities at large. What would be, uh, you know, your best piece of advice for students like that? Well, first of all, we're needed. When I look at the field today and I look at the people doing the most innovative work, there, there are people who are asking different questions. And it's not always the case, but oftentimes those of us who come from different backgrounds see the world differently and therefore we ask different questions of the world. We ask different questions of the past. We ask different questions of each other. And I think that's good. This is the sort of argument that diversity makes a difference. It enriches all of us to have kind of breadth of approaches questions and answers to those questions. So the first thing I would say is don't be discouraged. One of my favorite phrases from the Greek canon is which means know thyself. And I would say to that person, get to know yourself, understand your questions, understand your whys. And those will help you to to confront the no's when someone says you cannot do this or you should not do that. If you have a clear sense of your purpose and why you're doing it, it can really help when obstacles come your way. And now that sense is not going to be constant. It's not going to always be firm, but it's something you can always fall back on. Why am I doing this? Um, What am I after in this? What do I want to gain from this? And for me, it's always a question of learning. Um, What can I learn? And so those dispositions, I think, will help any student in any walk of life pursuing any goal, right? Kind of clarity of purpose is really important. And again, it's never all at once, but never stop asking yourself those questions. 
And then Patrice, I'm curious for you personally, you know, what are some goals that you have for yourself? You've, you've really reached quite a remarkable place in your career. Where do you go next and what do you draw inspiration from? Yeah, I mean, I want to write more books. There are questions I have and um, approaches that I'd like to take that require me to put my head down and read more and learn more and, and write more. And my inspiration are and my colleagues. This is not a, a kind of far-fetched thing for me to say. When I look at the colleagues around me in the classics department, for example, here at the University of Chicago, and I look at their prolific output and the work they're doing, it's very inspiring to be among these colleagues. So I draw my inspiration from them. And those are some of the things I'd like to achieve in my work. More scholarly production, more kind of approaches uh, and challenges to the field of classics. Those are the kinds of things that I would like to be able to do in the years to come. Also collaboration, the kinds of thing that I was talking about with the group in the UK that does classical reception studies. Those are some of the, the best times over the last decade or so was working with those scholars and producing work with those scholars and hearing their perspectives and seeing their approaches and learning from their approaches has been really enriching for me. And then finally, I know you've touched on this throughout our conversation, but what would you say is the most fulfilling part of the work that you do? Yeah, the ideas and the students that I keep going back to the field trip we had last night because it's just, you know, I just sort of look around the theater at a moment like that and I just beam, just so happy to see people out and about having an experience that they might not have undertaken on their own. That really brings me a lot of joy. So continuing to extend myself to students, continuing to provide a place where they can learn and grow is the most fulfilling thing for me. Thank you, Professor Patrice Rankin, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more and thank Thanks for listening.